0: bowlers. Are you looking to gain mental focus over your competition? Do you ever need that extra burst of all-natural energy during league play? Mindframe is the first all-natural supplement packed with vitamins and all-natural ingredients to keep bowlers at the top of their game. Supports muscle recovery and joint support for the day after that long tournament. You cannot continue to neglect your most important tool, your body. If you want to win, experience the striking power of Mindframe. Visit s3direct.com. That's s3direct.com.
1: Hi, this is Norm Duke. You're listening to
0: Above180.com with Tim Berg and Joey Serrar. Above180.com, taking your bowling game to the next level. Tim Berg and Joey Serrar are ready to hit the lanes, approaching the issues that you, the bowler, want to know. From the latest equipment reviews and coaching to drilling layouts. Now, from Washington, D.C., and the Bowler's Pro Shop in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, here are your hosts, Tim Berg and Joey Serrar. Okay, Mo, welcome to part two of the uh, the Mo Information on Above180.com.
1: My pleasure to be here, Joey. My pleasure to be here, Tim.
0: Now in our in our first show we we touched base a little bit about equipment, but not, not too much. Uh, you started designing balls. You said your first ball in nineteen ninety-one you want to give us a little history into your, your thought processes back then and, and if you were making symmetric cores only, asymmetric cores, and kind of bring us up to
1: 2011? Sure, I'll try and do it. It's kind of an interesting story. Uh, when I got into bowling seriously in the 70s, I kept, I've kept i got an engineering background, so I kept looking at the designs of bowling balls, and I said, these things aren't designed to roll good on a bowling lane. They're designed to be easy to make. That's what we were doing, pancake weight blocks. Then we got into the three-piece balls, the two-piece balls with the small symmetrical cores. And for definition, let's tell customers what a symmetric ball is. A symmetrical ball is basically a ball that you could cut on a lathe. If you put it on a lathe and took a tool and you do any handiwork and you cut it, if you slice the ball, the core, perpendicular to the pin, which is the low RG axis, turns out, perpendicular to the core, to the longest dimension of the core, it's a circle everywhere you look at it. That's a symmetrical core, okay? And that's what we, we started getting into, the small volume symmetricals. And in 1991, the first ball I did was the uh, shark by track. And the benefit that that had, not as a urethane ball at the time, is it had a larger volume core, and some people thought, you know, a large iron core. You put holes in it. You're going to take the guts out of the core. Turns out that that's not true. The larger the volume of the core, and the more the more the holes penetrate the core, the stronger the reaction you can create out of that ball. So I started with the shark for track. Phil Cardinale was there at the time. Then I moved over, and AMF got with AMF in '91. We started with the sumo, and the sumo was the first successful flaring ball in bowling. By flaring, we mean a ball that as it goes down the lane, the positive axis point migrates across the face of the ball, creates track flare in which every revolution of the ball is on its own own track. And when you do that, you increase the friction between the ball and the lane. And I remember in 1991, I did my first seminar for Ace Mitchell in Akron, Ohio, stood up in front of them and told them, in 10 years, you won't be able to sell a high-performance ball that doesn't flare. And bowlers being as introspective as they are, they told me I was full of caca at the time and that the ball track had to be tight because that's what we used to think of because that was a good roll in bowling ball. Well, as you and I know, track flare and increased friction between the ball and the lane is what started where bowling balls are today. We went from track flare in 91 to reactive resin in 92 because reactive resin created more skid in the oil and more friction in the dry, because now we got a cover stock that will really react when it hits the dry. And then we developed and found out that basically the biggest, the two big balls that I had done was the sumo in 91, and then in 1997, as Joey, you and I know, is the 3D offset. The 3D offset basically changed the entire sport of bowling. And at the time, we offset part of the core, and I didn't even really know what I was doing, but what I was doing was integre- introducing a degree of asymmetry to the ball. So asymmetrical cores came into being.
0: So did, did you find that out core. by accident, Mo?
1: Most of the things I did, I did by accident. I'd love to take credit for it.
0: And, and that's the, boy, boy, the way a lot of great inventions piece. come into, into being.
1: Sure.
0: It's through trial a, and error. You're right.
1: I had a three-piece core, an upper cap, a lower cap, and then a body. And what I said is we have to push the core off to the side in order to get a pin out ball so that the CG moves away from the pin. And my thinking was real simple. It wasn't on terms of asymmetry at the time. was that if I only move the body and leave the two caps on the primary axis there, if I just move the body, I'm only moving three-fifths of the mass of the core. I can move it further. So if I can move it further, I can create a stronger lever. And that's what we did. I did it for that. And then the ball gave us that new motion that we're seeing with that hockey stick look and the recovery on the outside. And what it turned out to be is I added a degree of asymmetry to the ball, but I was trying to say, hey, if I move three pounds instead of five pounds, which mate, I can move three pounds further to the side and get the pin out the same distance because if I move the entire core, I'd have to move a shorter distance. So I tried to increase the length of the lever, and in doing that, bingo, we have asymmetry.
0: Now and was the high RG axis marked at that time from from the yes, beginning? Yes, we
1: did. Yes, we did, and we didn't know it was the high RG axis, but we marked it because we wanted to mark it. We called it the hot spot. We wanted to mark it because we wanted to show on which axis we shifted the body, and then we found out through that. And it was it was uh, matching up with hammer was the first thing I wrote that talked about uh, drilling techniques of that type in which you use the pin, which is a low RG axis, the mass bias, which is a high RG axis, and the positive axis point. You use that triangle to define your layout, and that defines what percentage of the ball's motion potential you can put out. So that's how it started. And after that, I said, well, asymm- asymmetry is the answer, and it is. And we did a, nothing but asymmetrical cores until last year. But the environment changes. And the environment will dictate the techniques you use to solve the environment. We got lane machines, and we got so good at this, and we got wet-dry patterns. And you know what I mean by wet-dry? A ton of oil in the middle, very little oil on the outside. That's what we call a wet-dry. I call it, you know, you need a chair to see over the second arrow. Okay, so when you get that kind of a pattern, we got a lot of oil in the center and almost none on the outside and a good back end. You can actually oversteer the ball with an asymmetrical core. In other words, when it hits the friction, it reads it too hard, and it goes high. Then you move into the oil, and it reads it too weak, and it goes light. So what you needed was a less strong ball motion. Now we're back into symmetricals. And when I did the perpetual motion, which is my first symmetrical, it was designed for house patterns, and you know what I mean by THSs, wet-dry house patterns, and people that are red-dominant, they can actually create enough reaction where the ball will overread the friction. When you run into that, there's a need for a symmetrical ball because it will give you a longer, smoother transition from front to back, and you can't oversteer the ball with it. So that convinced me that because of the environment today and a lot of house conditions, we need symmetrical balls. So with that philosophy, our catalog sheet for this year for Murich, there are two symmetrical balls in the catalog. There are two asymmetrical balls. We have a very aggressive cover on one symmetrical and a milder on another. And in the asymmetrical line, we have a super aggressive cover. And thank you for giving it a 60-hook rating, the Destroyer. That's the first 60-hook rating in the history of bowling, which is, makes it the hook and it's ball on this planet. Got the Destroyer. And then we have the Ripper, which is got a little weaker cover, a little less differential so the ball goes clear and cleans through the front. It gives you a sharper a sharper break point, but it isn't super strong. So now we've got two symmetricals, two asymmetricals, so that any pro shop operator, including yourself, and you run a fabulous business up there, Joey, has Thank got you. a low rich tool that they can do for any customer that walks in the door. The only thing that's important, again, let the ball driller make the decision is what's the right ball to fit your game.
0: So we know the importance now of the core, the core shape and design. I've long described layouts. When a customer comes in and says, you know, Joe, I I don't know what kind of layout to put on this ball. I tried to describe layouts as helping to define the shape of the hook. Uh, Is is that an accurate way, or, or is there even a better way to describe it to the consumer?
1: That's very accurate. What happens with a layout is you have a ball that has certain... RGs and differentials, we call it, those are mass properties in math terms. But when you put holes in the ball, those numbers change. So depending on the layout technique you use, and I teach this in the advanced class, you can reduce the ball motion by 29%, make it more controllable, or you can increase it by as much as 55%. So the the layout can change the ball reaction by 84%. So you pick the tool the ball, the tool, that matches the customer and the lane, and then the ball driller then goes to work and works his magic, and he uses the layout to exactly define the shape of the ball motion. Your definition is perfect. It defines the shape of the ball motion. That's what the layout does.
2: Joining us on the Above180.com podcast is president of Mo Rich Enterprises and gold-certified coach Mo Pinnell. Mo, a follow-up with that is, so. in your opinion, then, would shape, is that more important than the amount of hook that you get out of a bowling ball?
1: Absolutely. Because how the ball transitions from front to back on the lane, from the foul line to the pins, will define the pin carry. we will let you know whether you create enough area, create some forgiveness, Margin for error and also percentage of pin carry. So the front to back motion and how it transitions from skid to hook to roll is more important to scoring than how much total hook you've got. Definitely, right, and, the shape is it. and You agree with me on that, don't you, Joey?
0: Well, yeah, Mo. It's you know it's, it's all about when the ball enters the roll phase, and, and too many bowlers are concerned with the hook phase. You know, and, and maybe we should touch base and describe it. You know, the, the three phases of ball motion are skid roll, or uh, sorry, sorry, skid, hook, and roll, and if a ball never enters that roll phase at the proper point, you are not going to carry consistently, correct?
1: That's correct, because if it's in the skid or the hook phase, there's still a slip factor, because the ball is traveling in one direction and rotating in the other. That's what's happening in the skid and the hook phase. Now, you're from Milwaukee, Joey, and you know what happens when you're driving your car and it's traveling in one direction, and you turn the wheels in the other direction, and it doesn't change direction. You know exactly. Well, no,
0: that, that's when my wife's driving the car, not me. Come on, now.
1: <laughs> but, <laughs> so there's a slip factor. So the rev rate is less in the skid and the hook phase. For the ball to reach its maximum rev rate as it goes down the lane for every single player, the ball has to enter the roll phase where it has turned to the pocket and is now traveling in a straight line towards the pocket at an angle. In the roll phase, there is no slip left. The ball is revving at its higher rev rate. And as you know, and everybody admits, rev rate increases carry. So to get the ball to its maximum rev rate for every player that bowls, they have to be in the roll phase before it hits the pins.
0: You know, Earl Anthony said that about thirty years ago when, when bowlers asked him, or, or an interviewer asked him about his rev rate. and He says, "I don't really care about my rev rate as long as it's at its highest point as it's entering the pins."
1: And he's right because that's in the roll phase. So the exactly. ball actually has to stop hooking for just a little bit. I didn't say back up. I just said stop hooking before it hits the pins for you to maximize your pin carry. That's very one hundred percent truth.
0: Right. Now, you've long-termed the phrase hookout as opposed to rollout, and, and I agree with you 100%. Do you want to explain that to our listeners?
1: Sure. That's a mathematical situation. When prior to the ball entering the roll phase, the bowler's axis rotation exceeds their axis tilt. They have more rotation and tilt. As the ball goes down the lane, it loses rotation and tilt, but it loses rotation faster than tilt. When axis rotation and axis tilt are equal, the ball stops hooking, ball's at its maximum run rate. Now, I said they're equal. So it could be, and it's a small amount of tilt, anywhere from 3 to 12 degrees. But they still have tilt, which means the ball's on, on a tilted axis. That's hookout. Ball stops hooking. Rollout is it'll lose tilt as it goes through the roll phase and eventually tilt, and rotation will equal zero. So true rollout is when rotation and tilt are equal, but they equal zero. And the guy who taught us that originally was Amleto Monticelli. Because Amleto used to throw shots in the 80s and rip the five, rip the five, rip the five, and then leave a flat five. And he didn't have a lot of tilt at that time, so the ones that ripped the five had two, one, two, three degrees of tilt. The one that left the five had zero degrees of tilt, so the ball did truly roll out. But that's the difference between hookout and rollout.
0: Right. And that's, that's, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I don't know if most of our listeners do, but uh, well, why don't we touch base a little bit on drilling a dual angle uh, system for an individual. There are certain parameters that we as ball drillers need to know. We need to know if your speed and rev rate are somewhat matched, as opposed okay. to being a speed dominant player or rev dominant player. We need to know your approximate axis tilt, which is basically a measurement of your diameter of your track, your ball track, your initial ball track ring. And then we need right. to know your axis rotation number, which basically is uh, a sideways rotation. would be more like a Pete Weber in 80, 90 degrees, a more forward rolling ball. will have a lower axis rotation near 20 or 30 degrees. And that determines basically how much back end motion your ball potentially can see, correct?
1: That's correct. So what we now, got is you got can, to go Can back. you add to that? yeah we got four factors and we use it on bowling chat when we when we have a forum called ball and layout advice if somebody wants ball and layout advice and it's great we ask him to give us four things ball speed rev rate initial axis rotation and initial initial axis tilt we don't really care about exactly the ball speed and the rev rate we want to know how they relate to each other as you said Are you matched? Does your ball speed match your rev rate? Even if you throw it hard and rev it hard, or throw it slow and rev it less. Or are you rev dominant, or are you, uh, speed dominant? That'll tell us how much, how long we want the ball to take to transition. If you're rev dominant, we want to do a layout that takes longer to go through the phases of ball motion. If you are speed dominant, we want a ball that tries to go through the phases quickly. So that's how we handle that, and that is the sum of the angles. You know that, Joey. Uh, right, and, and when, it, when a consumer comes
0: hey, into his favorite pro shop and, and gives his ball speed, and typically it will be off a monitor, we need okay. to add 2 to 2.5 miles per hour to that number basically to get uh, an accurate assessment of what their ball speed is at point now, of release, in number, other words, off the hand.
1: I use 2.5 miles an hour. I add to whatever the scorer tells you, because that speed is measured down where the... Uh, where the scorer is on the ball cap, which is down around 52 feet. So I had exactly. two and a half miles an hour. So the guy's 15 and a half miles an hour on on the scorer. That means he's 18 miles an hour off his hand.
0: So once we have these parameters, in other words, let, let's take a typical bowler uh, being myself, uh, 16 and a half off the hand, 300 rev rate, axis tilt 12 degrees, and axis rotation anywhere between a minimum of 60 and a maximum of 82. Uh, My sum, in other words, my angle sum as my benchmark mole, typically will be about 105?
1: Yes, because you're slightly, let's do it, let's just look at it, okay? You're slightly rev dominant, which means 95 is the median. So you're going to go up to 105, add about 10 degrees to that. So it takes a little bit longer to transition because you're slightly rev dominant. Your tilt at 12 degrees is right in the median because the median is between 12 and 18. So you're right on the median there. And then the other thing is is that your axis rotation is a little above average. The median axis tilt is 14 degrees, and the median axis rotation is 55. When we did an analysis of accomplished players and touring players, that's what we got as the median, 14 and 55. So now, if you're more rotation and tilt than that, we would subtract a little from the numbers. If you're less, we'd add a little. Because the more rotation and tilt you have, the longer the ball travels before it reads the lane, and the less rotation and tilt you've got, the sooner the ball reads the lane. So you're 105, yeah, with with your 60 to 80, yeah, you're right around 100 to 105 is your sweet spot. And I think you and I agree on that, right?
0: Right. And and again, and that's pretty much worked for me over the years, even before I started using dual angle terminology. Whereas I will typically drill a ball, say, with a 60 degree drill angle, which gives me good, easy length through the front part of the lane. A 40 degree angle to the valve, which gives me a quick enough response when the ball enters friction, but not too quick where I get instant hook and instant roll. And That's pin good. distances, I will use anywhere between three and, believe it or not, six inches, depending on how I want to define the back end motion or roll as the ball goes through the pins. Yeah, uh, I found the, some the really good success, Mo, point. with asymmetric balls at five, five and a half, six inches on some of the sport patterns where I'm playing outside of board eight, just to create okay. that end over end roll on the end of the pattern so the ball doesn't go too much sideways.
1: Right, you'll create end-over-end on asymmetrics at five inches. On symmetrical balls, you get a different reaction.
0: Yes, yes, I do. It's it's a little bit more angular off the spot at five inches.
1: Right, at five inches, you'll get more angular, but you'll get less flare on a symmetrical ball.
0: Quite a bit less flare, whereas on the asymmetrics, I can still see near six inches of flare on some products, even at five and a half.
1: Yeah, it it is. And you and I have both. We've, We've known each other a long time. We've gone through the learning curve to do all this, and I've educated ourselves, and we've done the trial and error, the empirical studies, and it's amazing how if you get three or four people that maybe did independent work in different parts of the country, and we sit together and we talk about it, we usually end up with about the same conclusions based on the fact that, you know, through trial and error and some inductive reasoning, we found out what works, and uh, that's just a verification of the accuracy. That's all the way I look at it.
2: Well, Mo, this is very interesting, as you and Joey are are just teaching me and all of our listeners here a great deal of of knowledge regarding ball motion and ball shape. And everyone, and myself included, you go in by Joey and you say, Joey, I want a ball that does X. And now you're really helping me to understand what I need to relay to my pro shop operator. So my question for you is this, Mo, as, uh, as bowling moves forward, are you seeing younger people uh in their 20s 30s embrace the pro shop industry and get into young pro shop operators because i have to be honest i go into a lot of pro shops and it's people in their 40s 50s uh, even 60s where is bowling going with pro shop because it sounds like everything here should make it want to you know make the younger people be interested because it's it's uh, a very uh complex and uh fulfilling thing to use as a uh, a way to drill bowling balls
1: yeah well you, you get, here we get into this parallaxy or this anomaly we got going on. I'm seeing the younger people, the math-oriented, uh, computer-oriented generation, and we're going to go less than 30 or 20, in their teens and in their 20s, the kids that have grown up with computers. If you want to get something done on a computer, find somebody under the age of 30. They'll do it for you in, in no time. Oh, I can do that. They have no fear when they operate a, a computer. Us older folks, we're a little more... Reluctant to do things. But these people understand, and they embrace the pro-shop industry and the education and the, and the mass properties and the CAD work and everything that goes on. Too much, and too much of the time, you get resistance from, and it's just natural, it's human, from, and a mistrust of, it can't be this complicated or it can't involve all this because we did it for 20 years, we didn't even do it. Well, we did it by the seat of our pants for 20 years. I was one of those guys. Joey, you were one of those guys once.
0: Oh, without a doubt.
1: But, but technology doesn't teach us how to think. It teaches us how to measure accurately. And technology has allowed us to develop more specific and more defined uh, answers to our questions. And here's my suggestion to the, to the readers or to, to your listeners. It's real simple. Find yourself a competent pro shop operator, a ball driller, that understands ball dynamics, understands physiology, understands psychology, and that's tricky in itself. And when you go into the pro shop, don't tell them how to drill the ball because you're not the doctor. Ask them, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a certain type of motion on a certain pattern. This is what I need my ball to do. And everybody's going to say, well, what do you need ball to, to do? I need it to go long, flip hard on the back, and knock down pins. <laughs> Sometimes it can go too long. You and I know the answer to that. Right. But allow the ball driller to use his skills and his training to give you what you're looking for. That's the ball driller's job. In fact, that, that's probably the toughest part of drilling balls, isn't it? Being a machinist is not all that hard if no. you're precise. Am I right, Joey? No, so a, a, a
0: monkey could be taught to drill ball a ball, but a monkey could not be taught to measure and lay out a bowling ball.
1: No, not at all. But let the ball driller do their job. And if a ball doesn't roll the way you think it should when they're done, explain that to your ball driller. If you don't like the answer you get, find another ball driller.
0: Right. And, you know, this kind of confirms the importance of finding an educated ball driller that you you both trust and have confidence in. Uh, But again, one who is also knowledgeable enough and and has a proactive mind because you can't be too set in your ways and be unwilling to change your philosophies and thoughts about measuring hands and laying out balls or you're going to be left in the dust, as you know. You know, Chris yeah, Barnes, I, I, many years ago, Mo indirectly kind of confirmed this whole skid, hook, roll philosophy, saying, You know, Joe, the big difference I see between amateurs and pros, other than their skill level, is most pros or amateurs look for the latest, sharpest breakpoint and perceived pin carry, whereas the top pros, we look for the earliest breakpoint on the lane with good pin carry, carry because we know it's going to be easier. To see and maintain that breakpoint visually, as well as when the lanes go through the transition phases, we'll know how to make adjustments better. So the pros look for the earliest breakpoint, amateurs like to look for the latest, and you and I know the latest, sharpest breakpoint often gives you the worst carry percentage.
1: Well, the latest, sharpest breakpoint is the hardest to control, and that's what I call you either strike or leave a puzzle or a design. And too many puzzles and designs really do eat up into your score potential. But the better bowler is looking to control the lane first. That's an earlier break point. Control the lane first and then add as much power as is necessary to carry. So they go control first, then carry second.
0: And I think on that note, Tim, uh, I, I mean, Tim, we kind of left you out of this no, interview I, quite a bit, but, you know, Mo and I, once we get going, we're not going to stop.
2: No problem, Joey. I don't mind being a second fiddle to yourself and Mo Pinnell. You guys are the true experts when it comes to the bowling balls and uh, cores and configurations. A very insightful interview, but that is going to do it for the Above180.com podcast. Tim Berg, Joe Serrar, Mo Pinnell, president of Mo Rich Enterprises. By all means, you got any questions? Shoot us an email at Tim at Above180.com, Joey at Above180.com. We'd love to hear your comments. Also find us on Facebook, taking your bowling game to the next level, and also Twitter, it's Above180. Till next week, good luck and good bowling.